Hello, I'm Alan Higgins, and you are listening to the Design Talk podcast. The following recording is a cross-pod release with The Blind Spot, a podcast created by Tina Lowe, Accessibility Officer at University College Dublin, Ireland. This episode was recorded on the 29th of November, 2021. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I'm your host, Tina Lowe. This podcast looks to show everyone about making Ireland accessible for all. Today in studio we have Lorraine Gallagher and Orla Hegarty. Hello Tina. Thank you. We're going to start with Lorraine. Lorraine, could you tell us about yourself and give us some of your background please? Hi Tina, I'm delighted to be here today. So I work for AHEAD, I'm the Information and Training Officer. And for those of you who don't know who AHEAD are, we work to promote the inclusion of people with disabilities in higher and further education and also in employment. So I've been working in AHEAD for uh, 16 years. But I'm here today really to talk about um, the environment with Tina. So my views are not necessarily the views of a head, just to say that at the that's, start. Yeah, that's fair enough. So Orla, how are you? Could you tell us about your background? Thanks, Tina. And thanks for the invitation to take part today. Um, yeah, as you said, um, my background is I trained as an architect and I worked in practice. Um, and then I uh, moved into working in UCD about 17 years ago, uh, firstly part-time and now full-time. And um, uh, so my area of work, I suppose, is is training um, uh, architects early in their career. And uh, my particular area is, is um, I suppose, around people and the built environment and, and the regulatory systems and the rules we have around that. And then more broadly around the kind of culture of all of that. What are we trying to achieve? How do people... Um, think about these things how do people use buildings and then how do people like myself who are involved make it real you know ensure that the intention is actually delivered in in buildings that people can can use and access and are available to the widest number of people possible okay because uh, this podcast the blind spot is concerned with trying to create a more inclusive and accessible society and culture and a huge part of that is access to the built environment so today we're going to try and explore a lot of different areas in that all relate to this and it's a very practical outlook and approach to trying to navigate the accessible environment so I'm going to ask Lorraine to talk to us about her personal experience because one of Lorraine's many attributes would have been in the past, and probably she'd still say it now, is Lorraine was a Paralympian champion, elite athlete, and like actually zooms around in her wheelchair, and Lorraine also uses crutches. But I know Lorraine a very long time, back since 1998 in the City Arts Centre when we were both trying to become rock stars, I think. <laughs> we were. Yeah, <laughs> music business course. And it was very interesting because when I met Lorraine first, truthfully, I, I had, uh, I was blind. I lost my sight in 1993, but I didn't get a guide dog for some time. So when I met Lorraine, I don't think I had my first guide dog. No, you didn't. No, I, that's right. I was using a cane and I was absolutely atrocious. That's the truth. I, I never, ever took to using a cane because I knew what was there, what was on the footpath, what was in my way cars were there, everything, the whole built environment was not, we'll say, the most accessible or user-friendly. And I remember when I met Lorraine first, Lorraine was literally powering down the road 
on purple crutches, if I'm right. I did have purple crutches, yeah. (laughs) And she was absolutely bombing along. And I was thinking, how in God's name is she doing that? And I was trying to tap along with a cane. So we became very good friends and we we both kind of decided in our different approaches, because Lorraine had been born with her disability, that it was different for me having an acquired disability and also probably being obsessed with equality daily. Now, Lorraine is probably obsessed with it as well, but it's kind of an intro to how we both uh, began working together on disability awareness and how every day in our lives the built environment affects people like us and also everybody else. So that's why that's kind of a, a general introduction to Lorraine the purple crutch champion <laughs> warrior who, if you were in her <laughs> way, hard luck, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and but also, you know, like if so, Lauren, give give us a, your your insight and your experience of what it's like negotiating Ireland. Well, Tina, in those days, you're right. Yeah, I did fly up and down on the crutches, but I have actually been driving now for many many years, and have been obviously retired from the sport for many years. So I'm definitely not as fit as I was then. So um, I am, I suppose, you know, able to have the option of walking on the crutches if I feel, you know, if I want to, or using the wheelchair. So I have that choice, right? Yeah. And uh, it's funny. I get given out to when I go around in the wheelchair because I spend more money. Because I can browse better in the shops and relax, you know, as opposed to being on the crutches and trying to carry loads of bags, things like that, right? But um, I think the environment has improved, you know, over the years. But I think it's still got uh, a long way to go. I mean, I was just walking down here from the the car Mm. and I noticed that the footpath from when my car was parked right up to the front of here was all gravelly. Right. Now, obviously, they're they're going to finish it. I hope, but like <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, there you go. So, yeah. and then gravelly can, is not good. And gravelly for somebody who is on crutches or in or a wheelchair is wheelchair. really not yeah. good. Yeah. You know, but I think it it um it does get better. I think, but uh, one of the major concerns about the whole thing about the built environment and why things are built certain ways is that you and I, as people with disabilities, understand why things are built a certain way, like disabled car park and bays or the disabled bathroom. Um, but I think for the general population, there still isn't enough awareness of why they're there and why they're there for specific people with specific needs. Okay, so that's a you very know, good uh, way issue. to bring in Orla, the ar- architect, to talk to us, Orla, if you can try to explain to people, because it is something that you would notice a lot, that like designing buildings from the scratch how to include people, how do architects approach it? What is the approach? Um, Thanks. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that, you know, when we build something, it's there for a very long time. So, you know, when we think about um, making buildings more inclusive and more accessible, we're probably only at that for the last 30 years or, you know, or a bit more. So that all of the building stock from before that, um, a lot of it is not suitable. And in fact, you know, a lot of what we've built since isn't isn't optimum either. So, you know, people would be aware of the really obvious ones like the disabled parking blades that, that give more space for people maybe using a wheelchair or have some mobility uh, needs for more space. Um, and they'd be more aware of um, buildings having uh, toilets that are more accessible, so you know more space and them being more available and having lifts in in more buildings than maybe in the past. 
But uh, so some of that is regulated. Some of that is because you have to have lifts in buildings now and you have to have um, toilets available that are a larger size. But that doesn't mean that it meets everybody's needs, you know. So sometimes when we regulate things and the law change, the building regulations change, um, you know, we take in things that, that meet specific needs, but maybe aren't wide enough um, or considered enough for every need, you know. And sometimes it's the space that's allowed, but the thinking of, you know, how do other people navigate this building if they have, um, you know, a sight impairment or, or you know, hearing difficulties or some, you know, cognitive difficulty with even reading where you might go into a building or where you might move around or, you know, there's so many different layers to this, you know, and then, you know, beyond that, there's a lot of disability that's unseen as well. And, you know, we're, we're much slower, I think, to make, um, accommodations for that understand yeah. what it might and be is it because i don't know no i'm not i'm not an architect and i i just i work in campus accessibility and i'm fascinated to to try and i always try to understand why is it that say like ucd has done a huge amount of really good development in the last i'm here 13 years i'd say maybe 10 years really huge amount of improvement and to try and make things more accessible but like obviously it dates back to the 17th 18th century it's it's over 360 acres it's we have period houses we have built buildings built in the 1960s in the main campus area and now we have some brand new buildings some of which have won awards for universal accessibility such as say the student center the confucius institute is a fabulous building but what i don't understand and i ne- i can't understand this is why is it that a build, some one building will be built and they'll do a certain type of ramp and then another building will be built and they'll do a different type of ramp and neither of those two ramps are the same and they're not accessible so what what is that about architecture why why does that happen is that the lay of the building or what is it what's the architectural answer well i suppose yeah, a chance that I suppose is a bit of reinventing the wheel. You know, architects always tend to try and, you know, push things a bit. Um, there's also that they're probably working to the same minimum regulation. So both of them might comply with the actual building regulation. But the building regulation could be just the bare minimum. And, you know, if you spoke to people who are going to use that ramp every day, you might go a lot further or you might do things differently Um, because even the surface can make a difference. Like I know from speaking to people previously, like that some surfaces are fine, but not when they're icy. And, you know, some surfaces are okay for people with crutches, but if the ramp is too steep, well, they're better on stairs. And, you know, a lot of that kind of understanding, I think, is poor. And then if you get to the top of the ramp and there's space to turn a wheelchair, maybe, but the door is too heavy. Yeah, like, you so, know, so your access uh, independently isn't any better than if you couldn't yeah. get up the steps. So there's, so. so there's a lot of elements to it. It's it's not. There it's, are a lot of elements. And I think there's not enough awareness. I think I agree with you. I mean, I think people often interpret the bare minimum regulations and they don't have the experience or understanding to get into the head of the person who will actually yeah. have to use and it. And do you think it's always or it's sometimes budgetary or is it is it because, say, people are under pressure to build to a certain time frame i don't know that things are budgetary you know i'd say it's more that i think our building regulations should go further i mean if you look at the work done say by the national disability authority you know where they 
they make you know meaningful layouts for say apartments and they they give you know examples of this is how it would work better this is a better position for a door or you know if you have extra space in a living room you've got that bit of freedom to move more easily or the bathroom might work better for particular needs if you need a hoist or something so i think you know we we kind of need to go further i think than the bare minimum regulations and not i suppose not every architect or not every budget would stretch to that yeah and it's true actually the the national disability authority have a really good document building for everyone where they are that that document pushes the boat out much more on it's not minimal standards it's it's trying to encompass universal accessibility for everybody and i think that a lot of it is probably to do with consultation as well. And Lorraine, if, I'm just going to ask you, because I, I, one of the things we asked Lorraine to do before she came in here today was to go and do an actual recce on Dublin City <laughs> Centre since, because uh, as the listeners know, we're, we're experiencing a probably 20, 21 months now of a world, of a pandemic that has changed things for everybody in physical, culturally, everything, awareness, workplaces. So what we're going to talk to Lorraine and Orla uh, shortly is about the whole aspect of how COVID has encroached on people's lives in a lot of different ways, some for the more positive, some for the negative. But one of the tasks we asked Lorraine to do was to actually go around Dublin City Centre and give us her honest opinion of how she thinks things have panned out physically, yeah. access-wise. Yeah, I did. I actually I went, um, the north side, I went south. So I went to the south side and I went to the north side. So when I say I went south, I went the Grafton Street, kind of those streets around that. Um, so, you know, down past Grogan's Pub, all around there. And um, there's a lot of, like, you know, on-street furniture now. But what they've done really well, and I was really surprised was, was that they've, where they would have had, say, extra space on the footpaths, you know, for people to walk, they've actually kind of used that space now to put tables and chairs out. And actually it's worked well in the sense that there's still room to get past. So I was actually really surprised about that because I was thinking, how's that going to work in terms of somebody, you know, with a wheelchair or pram or whatever trying to kind of navigate around the environment so actually it was quite good it was much better than I thought it was going to be um and it has that kind of uh European feel to it now you know going around people sitting outside I suppose the downside with the Irish climate is is the weather really you know and if you are going to be asked to sit outside that there is proper heating and proper facilities for you to be sitting outside and of course then if you do need to use you know the facilities that would have been inside the restaurant that you can still do that because not all restaurants have got you know accessible bathrooms or whatever so it's knowing so it's still about knowing places to go that will suit your needs and do you think that it could work in Ireland well I think it were I mean I think it possibly did work over the summer when the weather was warmer I don't know about now if I'd you know, maybe for a little while during the day I'd sit out, but I don't think me personally that I would be sitting outside at night. So what what would you say recommend that would change for the night time? I think you'd need to have really good heating systems and stuff like that, you know, for people to be comfortable sitting outside. I think it's different in Europe where you have the warmer, you know, the nights are warmer. If 
by the nature, you know, the climate. And uh, I just don't think that we're there. And of course, you know, okay, we haven't been too bad the last while. The weather hasn't been too bad. But like, you know, it rains a lot here. And what about the layout of, say, the streets paving or the streetscapes? Like, have they taken into account for people who have to navigate with different mobility impairments? Yeah, I think they're quite good. I I was actually quite surprised. What I was more worried about was when I initially, because I had also been in town a few weeks before before you had asked me to do it, and I was um, trying to, you know, kind of uh, some of the disabled parking bays, I couldn't find where they were. And it was only when I went here the second time to go specifically for driving for this podcast that um, that I, I found they had moved them, you know, because normally if you're a disabled, you know, if you have a physical disability, you tend to know where all the... The, the Blue dis- Bay parking the, the areas bay, are. Yeah, yeah, you know where the bays yeah. are, yeah. And so, what, what what did you do then? Like, where were they? How did you find out where they were moved well, to? Well, it was or? just that I ended up, because I was in the car for part of it as well, and I was driving around, and I just happened to see, oh... They've been moved to there, you know, because town. And do you think they were replaced or? And they look like they'd been. They look like newer ones. I, I do. I do think there is an issue though with disabled bays in general, where there isn't actually enough. You know, there isn't actually enough. And as a disabled driver, you know, driver, or even you know, if you're the passenger and you're being brought around, you do tend to know where those bays are in in, in, in the city. In the city, well, and even where you live, you tend to know where they are, or or where you have, tend to go shopping. I'm just going to bring Orla in on this because Orla, could you talk to us about? I know you've done a lot of work in the last, we'd say, twenty months. On um, would would it be with the environment, outdoors and indoors? Yeah, well, this on the whole, I suppose, pandemic and uh, and built environment and prevention as as well as everything else. But uh, just to follow through on some of the things um, Lorraine was saying, you know, I'd agree with her. Like the widening of footpaths has been great for everybody and you know, even uh, cycle lanes and reducing the proximity of traffic to people, you know, has made things a lot better for people, even if it's that you're holding a child's hand or that if you're using a wheelchair or, you know, just if you're elderly and you're you're um, a bit nervous of being so close to traffic, like all of those things have been good. But there is more clutter on the footpaths. You know, there is more space being taken up by tables and chairs, which is grand if you're using them but not so good if you're trying to work around them or if you're if you knew that footpath for years and now you know you're uh, you're having to navigate something that's a new obstacle that you weren't you weren't used to um but yes so so you know Lorraine was talking there about sitting outside in the winter that you might do it for a bit on a on a cold day uh, but really um what we need to do is make the inside safe um, because we need to be inside it's very cold at the moment it's going to be cold for the next few months and we need to so we need to get the air quality right inside so the breathing inside is as safe as breathing outside basically and how do we do that Arla? like what's what's involved in that well the first thing we need to do is measure um how much of a problem we have you know um obviously uh, you know a lot of places are, are pretty safe actually and we could keep them open and we don't need to be worrying too much um but there are places that are very unsafe so it's a little bit like food safety i think you know the vast majority of restaurants um have good standards and then we police it so that when we find the places that are unsafe they get dealt with um so we need to we need to start measuring it first off and then we need to start dealing with the places that are unsafe and there are you talking about say in commercial like shopping areas offices yeah, everywhere. Well, we need to we need to give people advice, I suppose, firstly about ventilating buildings because a lot of people don't realize that you do 
you know, buildings are designed with ventilation, it's all regulated. So we need to give people some advice, especially in cold weather when they tend not to ventilate. Um, and then we need to give business owners and people operating schools and all sorts of other workplaces advice about, uh, you know, what um, what is safe. So sometimes it's to do with the number of people there or the operation of the equipment. Sometimes it's to do with um, it becoming high risk just in certain conditions or whatever. So it's all very manageable, I think. The problem is we have a huge learning curve. Is, is that whole area new to Ireland? Yeah, I'd put it this way, Tina. I'd say none of it is new, uh, but a lot of it is forgotten. You know, this is stuff that was... You know, I mean, if you go back into history, this is this, you know, Florence Nightingale was sorting out ventilation in hospitals for infection control and they were doing it in Spanish flu and in all sorts of other ways when there was pandemics. But we haven't had really a problem in Ireland with airborne disease since TB and that's more than, you know, 50 years ago. So because this because COVID-19 is airborne, we need to this is something that we do really need to address in a, a joined up thinking approach. Yeah. We need we need to go back to what we were doing actually in the past with buildings um, and that has been forgotten largely. And now that we're sealing up buildings for energy efficiency, we've made things worse. And would that be, you know, I notice a lot in newer buildings, air conditioning is on and you can't open windows. Is that right or wrong or is that is that can we go back to having windows open and no air conditioning well, or? It depends on a lot of it comes down to the size of the building, like we're in a very mild climate in Ireland, really. And, you know, we're not in extremes like some countries where you couldn't survive without air conditioning. Um, so most of the year we can be quite comfortable with outside opening windows and most of our buildings are small enough for that to be fine. Some of our bigger buildings obviously are just too big to manage with that kind of ventilation and we have equipment for it. And so that equipment needs to be run properly so that there's enough fresh air being brought in and disease isn't trapped in the building and everybody breathing it um so we don't have as much a challenge as some other countries you know if you were in texas or in dubai or somewhere and um, the challenge is much much bigger because you have extremes of climate but we don't really so i think it's a very manageable problem in ireland as long as you know once we once we take it on board and and try and give people proper advice about it and um, have you come up with much resistance to this in your work i know you've been doing a lot of media work and informing yeah, there's, people there's as still a huge resistance at, at um government and institutional level to accepting this the environmental science of what i call the environmental science you know we've had a very medical response to it and it, you know um vaccines are are great and medical treatment has improved um but you know the medical sciences look after the medical sciences this is environmental science and i think um it hasn't been uh, seen as an opportunity to um uh, suppress the pandemic and to deal with this it's been seen as a as another barrier but in fact it's an enormous opportunity i was just going to say lorraine was speaking about there saying that you know truthfully it is nice to sit outside, but it's very cold in Ireland at the moment, um, even though it wouldn't be as cold as some countries, but it is a temperate climate, but it's not really conducive to sitting outside. No, not at all. Or in a classroom with all the windows open. So how would you address that? Well, I suppose it's the same for rest- restaurants, maybe a bit more challenging because people don't wear masks and, you know, and the numbers are very high at the moment. But um, ju- just more broadly, what, what you do is you, you check to see how fresh the air is there at the moment. And you can do that with a CO2 monitor. And that really tells you, are you breathing fresh air or are you breathing what somebody else has just breathed out that could be infected? Um, and then once you've measured that, you can say, OK, do we need to improve the ventilation here? And there's different ways of doing that. Or you can improve it with filtration so that you're filtering the air 
air that's going around in the building. Um, and so in some cases, it's it's more ventilation or it's filtration. In some cases, it might be that you reduce the occupancy. You know, you might say this space is fine for 50 people, but it's not for 70 um, with the level of ventilation here. Um, and then, you know, in the short term, obviously, we need to get case numbers down and masks is, is, is the best way to do that. So in the places like in, um, you know, a learning environment in a university or in a school or in workplaces or in shops, you know, that in the short term is certainly a way to keep the cases down. But longer term, if we can sort out indoor air quality, um, that'll, that'll do the heavy lift. There's a huge thing that I've noticed, actually, and Orla, I'm going to ask you about this as well, because I love tapping your brains, right? And basically, I, I've noticed in the last 20 months or so, when we've been all encouraged to walk forever, to be outdoors, to enjoy our environment, which is lovely, and lovely greenery, and fresh air, and the sea, and forests. But in my local village, Shankill, um, nobody has remembered to cut back overhanging bushes or shrubs so and i know they would have said in the past oh it's pri- it's private property you can't cut it back or it's it's a local authority so they're not working during the pandemic but that was a huge thing and i couldn't understand how nobody mentioned that at all in the media that no one's working so every time you try to walk down the road you're getting attacked by thorns shrubs that are completely covering the paving so and I, I, I you know I, I actually my mother who's in her 70s and quite a <laughs> determined woman she got out with her own secateurs on Shankill main road and was stopped by a number of passers-by asking her was she working for the county council and they they were being honest so I don't understand that's something that I, I find very hard to understand that nobody mentions that ever that never comes up that why aren't you like why don't we maintain our own private areas outside our houses why don't the local authorities do their job get out and cut back trees and bushes because it's really difficult to walk around so any comments on that orla yeah no i'd agree with you i I wish there was more you know kind of just awareness and reminders of these things because you're right i mean that you know that can injure you apart from the you know just the upset of of something like that happening and it but it, it happens it's not just the, i suppose the plants that are growing but you know randomly putting in you know signage on footpaths poles you know duplicating existing poles bollards sometimes that seem completely arbitrary people putting the you know advertising signboards out on footpaths outside cafes and things like that they're all obstacles to so many people getting around and and sometimes I think it's just a complete lack of awareness. Yeah I was going to say to Lorraine just on that topic like what's it like where you live and like I know like we you know a lot this podcast is about trying to you know talk about things and kind of create awareness but we're also oh there's always a positive way around things and I know that when say even in local areas things like tidy towns can get out and cut back trees and but it it's I just noticed I, I thought personally and I'm gonna ask you Lorraine if you if you agree or disagree with me on this that I think since the pandemic began that I noticed that people who had in general say weren't parking on footpaths at the audible lights or a lot of our kind of ways went I think it was a bit dog eat dog and you know we were back to survival instincts and I think that 
you know, there was trucks parked where they wouldn't have parked before, and a lot of people are under so much pressure and stress that the the kind of niceties or manners about trying to, you know, be a reasonable or a citizen like went out the door. I found in in where I live, and I've been living there forty years, and in general, most of the time, it's it's a very easy place to get around because people are very good about not parking their cars on the lights or so what do you think on that one Lorraine do, would you would you have noticed that or um, look I'm going around the place all the time and you just meet all sorts all the time like my locals like Tesco's if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> no the staff at Tesco's are absolutely brilliant right there right but there's a, a gentleman who shall remain nameless uh, I was going to Tesco I go to Tesco's uh, when I know it's going to be quiet Right to do a bit, you know, and uh, I was I went into, and it's the same time nearly every day. I'd kind of go because I know it's quiet then, and I noticed this this man uh, with a red car, right, and uh, and he and he and he was parking. I'd say I'd have like the the first space nearest the door because I want to be near the door, right, for obvious reasons, and uh, I noticed he was parking like really close to the car. So one day. He happened to park just as I parked, and he parked so close that I actually couldn't get the door fully open. And I had to open the window and say, uh, can, you, can you slightly move your car? And I was really nice, right? I said, can you just slightly move your car? I need to open the door to fully to get out. And he said to me, oh, you've loads of room. And he walked off. And I was like, oh, God. So I would had to move the car to a different space and obviously got out and uh, it took me a while to move sort out the car again you know all that thing go in and uh, anyway that was fine but he put me in a bad humour then right but he also goes to the shop at a certain time of the day and I noticed that he goes at the same time as me so now I just don't park near where he's where I know that person's going to park and this person's a senior citizen and I kind of feel like you know what you should know better but but (laughs) would you not address that with him well, I kind of feel, I was just so, when he just said to me, oh, you've loads of space, I went, oh, what? You know, sometimes you have to just, because you'd be angry every day. Yeah, I know. But, you know, there's a general kind of ap- apathy about, you know, why people need certain things. Like, even, say, going shopping, because now is the time to be, you know, trying to get stuff for Christmas or whatever. And um, I happened to go shopping in a shopping centre that I'm, well, you know, very familiar with. Yeah. And... Uh, the last while, there's always people that are not physically disabled going in and coming out and you're left waiting. And you're just like, I can't go anywhere else. I need to use this bathroom. I need to use this toilet. What is going on? That people, and a lot of people with children as well, that could go to the other toilets and you're like, what's going on? It's really frustrating. And you could just argue every time you go out. In a gym, where, which I don't actually go to very often anymore. But anyway, yes, it, it, it was a similar situation. There was only one accessible bathroom built in this gym, which I had to use um, because the shower was contained within it. And I was on a time, you know, it was we were going at lunchtime. And, but anyway, I was going there quite a lot. And the staff were brilliant. And the gym instructors are really helpful. And I used to bring my guide dog and he could fit in the bathroom and sit beside me when I was trying to pedal on a exercise bikes and 
unfortunately, one of the days, one of the members of staff, uh, I had to, I couldn't use the bathroom because it was occupied, and it turned out that it was a member of staff. So I got very annoyed, and I am unlike Lorraine, and I think I wish sometimes I wish I wasn't because it is true you do sometimes have to be nearly angry once a day. But I I did say it to her. I said, look, I said there's only one. I can't actually use the main shower area because it's there's twenty cubicles and I can't find them. So why are you using the bathroom? And she said, because I'm in a hurry and I have to do my makeup. So I, I thought, right, okay, that's... Well, I said, can you please not do it again? That was it. She walked off, right? So I said, okay, that's once. So the following week, I returned, same person, in the bathroom again, doing the same thing. So I did actually get quite annoyed and I spoke to the management about it. I wrote to the management and I was so angry about it that I actually left the gym because I felt they didn't address it properly. So I suppose the difference would be that um now I know it's very hard and I'm just going to ask Orla about this as well cuz you know like it's it's it is hard you can't spend your life being angry but I do think that you, if if we don't address it bit by bit it, it doesn't change but then again why do we have to always get angry that's true like what Orla do, do you have any I agree with you Tina and I think we do need to get angry actually because because these things are really important you know I mean if we if we have um you know, if if people have equal rights and we have an, you know, we have a values of inclusion, well, then we have to vindicate those rights, and it shouldn't be left up to individuals to have to, you know, get angry and make changes. We should collectively be all trying to do it. And you know, if, could I just pick up on something Lorraine was saying there about the parking? Um, just while people have the disabled parking bay size in their minds. Um, housing standards have all been reduced in the last few years for apartments and I think it's very discriminatory towards disability in, in a lot of what's happened um, because because by shrinking down um, what people the space people will have to live in it's 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 going to reduce the availability of that housing to people who need specialist equipment or who need a bit more space or who need to have a carer live with them you know, or an assistant or, you know, all of the other um, things that are more demanding in housing. And we had been moving much, you know, I mentioned about the National Disability Authority, we had been moving much more towards housing that was more inclusive. So we had, you know, downstairs toilets and level entrances on new homes, you know, so that you could be visited more easily, or that people could age in their home without having to move, you know, so it's lifetime housing. Um, and I think some of the changes in apartments now have been a bit retrograde and, and have moved. And like, why have they been allowed? Well, shrinking standards is to do with, you know, money, I suppose. Um, but in the longer term, you know, we want people to be able to stay in their home if they develop, a debil- a, you know, a disability or if they have more challenges as they get older. Um, and we want people to be able to, you know, have guests into their home and and to accommodate um, any other whether it's you know specialist equipment or a hobby or working from home or a child or you know all of these things that are just normal life should not be seen as um outside the normal and something that needs specialist housing we should be making all our housing to accommodate the greatest number do you think garla that we can go back to that because i know i know what you mean exactly the the lifetime housing approach um like I was down in Kerry recently in a in a brand new scheme, or housing area, and like that, I was I was so impressed. I was sitting there thinking, "Oh my god, if this was like everywhere, like 
the house the houses were all it's in a small estate but they're all this, they're all it's the same builder but he asked everybody before they moved in what did they have any like children with disabilities did they have disabilities did they need anything different did they have asthma you know all that kind of thing so they built the houses slightly differently to each person's requirements and but they're basically a house that you could live in forever and the the most amazing part for, for me was that when I got there they had a ramp <laughs> into the house and I'm laughing looking at Lorraine going isn't that amazing like I got so excited because I thought that is amazing like that means that whoever's living here when they're older or whatever or whatever happens they'll be able to get in and out of their own house I actually got my I got a ramp you know, to cut across, you know, right? Yeah, my go own, ahead. When yeah. I moved into the, um, the house I live in now, it's a, actually I live in a, a small, a tiny bungalow. Or oh, it's tiny. But um, but it's adapted. Well, I sort of gutted the place and put a few things in, but it, it is kind of too small. It's a bit small for a wheelchair user. But anyway, it doesn't matter. What I did was, to the front of the house, I got cobble lock, and I got it sloped up to the house, and the whole drive cover, so I wasn't getting out of the car into the grass. And it looks great because it just looks like it was that was the way it was built, you know. Yeah, and there's no extra cost to most of these things at the beginning. There's no cost. It's just thinking about it, isn't it? Like, it's it's yeah, amazing. it is. And even the doors, like in this this place I was in, the doors are wider. Oh, so that's, you know, you can get in your wheelchair. The door handles are down at wheelchair house. Now, I know a lot of houses have that, but just very kind of real simple stuff like rounded walls so that when you walk into something which I do regularly you don't whack yourself that's very good isn't you know it? you yeah. know it's just kind of and then the whole area had different some little tweaks to make it usable for whoever lived there so it means they're all really happy and they can stay there without having to move again but it's it's wider than you know I suppose it, you're talking about the doors being wider I mean I, for at, at one time in my life I used to push a twin buggy and you know, you know, there's so many other needs that are accommodated by accommodating people who who Which need more space yeah, to operate design. a wheelchair, or you know, it 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 isn't it isn't an it isn't a niche area for yeah, a few exactly. people. Yeah. It makes housing available to you know everybody. and more useful to everybody, and it means they have more security to be there longer term as well. That's just good universal design. Like in my mind, I say to myself, well, you know what, if all parking bays were built better universally built we wouldn't have this problem or if all bathrooms were universally built would we have this problem you know if we were allowed now obviously it costs money more space possibly to have bigger cubicles or whatever but you know if you could actually if we were allowed to design better and like that that whole thing that's why say coming back to the you know the discussion on say why it is that i know people might put in minimal standards they might put in say I've noticed one area that has a ramp and and they put these little kind of pointed areas stuck up off the ramp the railing and it's actually it's kind of dangerous and it's uncomfortable but it probably looks lovely so I know architectural as well is about design and you know how you know the look of the area but I'm just wondering like say Orla if you had a choice tomorrow say you were the minister for design right or the minister for architecture and good air how would you approach nationally how to make people aware and to stop to just like even if they don't put in fancy things or whatever to try and make buildings usable for everybody without always thinking it's going to cost a fortune or it's going to ruin the aesthetics you know 
I think the, I think the first thing is just to make a bit more space everywhere. Like like a lot of disabled toilets are just not big enough for, you know, some of the needs of people in terms of changing or having an assistant with them. You know, the footpaths aren't wide enough. The bedrooms aren't big enough to turn a wheelchair, you know, really basic things. And then I think there's a whole level of education, particularly, you know, for the, I suppose, the students of architecture and built environment planning and urbanism and engineering as well. Um, to understand, like, because there's often a lot of compromises in some of this too, which maybe is the other side that we we don't talk about enough. You know that you're trying to balance different needs. Um, somebody described to me recently, you know, architects putting metal studs into the footpaths so that people, you know, uh, you know, when you come to a crossing, um, that you can feel underfoot that you're approaching a danger or whatever. Uh, but somebody used metal studs and then in hot weather uh, guide dogs are really uncomfortable with that <laughs> oh yeah you know so you're kind of going backwards or you put in a railing to guide somebody you know from falling but it actually is a trip hazard or you know so there's there's a lot of detail considerations that i think comes with education and awareness and uh we're probably we probably need to do an awful lot more on that and lorraine what do you think oh i totally agree and i i think as well um we need more people with disabilities getting involved in those as and then yeah. careers studying those areas because it's that insight that input it's very like it's very hard for a, a, you know a group of you know just let many of them will have just left school or whatever you know going into an area and spending a an amount of time doing you know good universal design or good design and then they go off and do other things you know so it's getting the insight of people that are using it on a on a more no, regular I basis. I totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, when I say education and awareness, it has to come from engagement with people who can explain this and who understand, you know, more than just a regulation on a page in a book, who understand what that means and and can even tell us whether the regulation works or whether it should be changed. I mean, I've got a funny example. Myself and a colleague, um, we decided, I don't know, it was lunchtime, and uh, we went up to Black Rock, the shopping centre there, and... Uh, you know, you only have an hour. It's a bit of a rush. And I could not get a disabled bay for love and money. So I had to park in a normal bay, right? And this person would be, you know, well aware of, you know, disability, you know, those kind of needs, whatever. And so anyway, it took me ages to get out of the car. I think I was driving the Mini at the time. Do you remember I had the Mini, yeah. Tina? Yeah. I was driving the Mini at the time. And I had to lie across the two seats, get my feet out and get I got out of the car eventually. It took ages to get out of the car. And we went back to the office, right? And this person said to me, you know what? She said, I thought I got it. I really thought I understood it until I saw you struggling to get out of the car. You know, and that was somebody that worked in a head at the time, you know. So it's so it is hard, you know, and you do feel I feel like sometimes you know, you're just that moany disabled person going around going, <laughs> yeah. Why'd you have yeah. to do that? Why'd you have to park there? You know, yeah, it's yeah. very yeah, hard. It's very it hard. Yeah. It is hard. It's hard and that is true. I I, I totally agree with you that every single day I, I I nearly say it to myself when I'm walking up through Chanka Village and I've lived there for forty three years and I know people from when I could see when I was in the tennis club and I, I know the more or less the layout but every day I walk up through the village I, I have to nearly tell myself now if somebody's parked up front of in the front of the lights let's try and be reasonable here ish but you just sometimes you come across people and it's just they just don't get it and then then I have to give my sermon up from the mount but I don't really think it is because I actually think it helps 
because like what Arla said, I, I honestly think people need to be far more vocal and not be so accepting of people's behaviours because there's no need to do it. But, but, but it shouldn't I just, always be the people who have the disability, I think, who have to carry the load. I know, of being I know it is. And then we get, we get, the, we get <laughs> labelled that angry woman. But the other thing, I was just going to say something, because this is, it is true, like, we're we're all about positivity on this podcast as well, which is very true, because that's the way I, like, I know Lorraine well, I know Orla, and we lead our lives in a positive way. So there has been quite a good few developments over the years since I've worked in UCD with the students doing the uh, competitions with the National Disability Authority called the, like, 24-hour challenge, and where I, I actually took part in one of the first ones and it was brilliant like we basically were given um we went into a hotel in town and we were asked to design um different as you know things that would help people with disabilities or ways to get around and it was for the dublin city council and it was a competition and you know and it was amazing because we had a certain amount of time to do it we had to design stuff they walked around with me to see what it was like with a guide dog trying to negotiate say Grafton Street all that kind of thing so there are things like that that happen and and then they also like the uh, the Royal Institute of Architects do fantastic competitions as well to promote when a building is made really accessible and it wins awards so I think there are good initiatives but I think like everything that if we can try and get it culturally into our culture more and that's something that I just want to ask maybe a general, what are your thoughts on how we can change our culture? Lorraine and Arlen. Mm, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a hard, hard one. one. Yeah. yeah, I just think like there just needs to be more awareness through, you know, the media as well. There needs to be more advertising, there needs to be more stuff in schools, there just needs to be more stuff in general around the whole thing about diversity and disability. And that disability doesn't get swallowed up by just their word diversity because it can, that can mean so much to people and I often find as well people who uh, contact me through work and they say oh I didn't know who ahead or didn't know who you didn't know you existed and the reality is for people unless it, it actually concerns them themselves there isn't that you know why would I want to know about that it doesn't affect me sort of mentality you know or they see something is just vacant and, oh, I'll just slip in there. It'll only be a minute. How many times in my life have I heard people say, oh, I was only there for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah. then my mother's looking at me and when I'm in the car, like my mother was looking at me one day. She said, I've never seen you get so annoyed at somebody. I, You know, yeah. uh, from the window of the car going, oh, my God, <laughs> you know. So it's it's that kind of like, unless it affects people directly, there often isn't the appetite to change. To change, yeah. So, Orla, um, you know what struck me actually when I was listening to you. I remember in the first lockdown. Do you remember there was a when everywhere was closed and people were walking a lot, and there was a big uh, controversy about there not being enough toilets available to people. Yeah, that's right. And I remember having a conversation with somebody one day, and they said, "But like this is life for people with disabilities all the time. You plan your entire life around whether there's a toilet, what hours it's open." what floor it's on, you know, um, uh, and, you know, your your independence and freedom is often down to something as simple as that. And it was when everybody else had their independence and freedom curtailed by the lack of availability of toilets that maybe that 
came home to people that, you know, just having facilities, whether it's enough parking bays, enough toilets, enough signage that's appropriate, you know, or the simple things, the trees being cut back, the street signs, um, you know, the, the, the whole, those small things might seem small, but they can be a barrier to somebody's participation in just feeling independent enough to go out or to take a job or to take a place in education. You know, they're, they're often the very small things that stop people participating. Yeah, because that is one thing that I would say to people when they're thinking about going to college, right? Um, particularly if they have, you know, certain types of disabilities, I would say to them, do you know what you need to do? You need to go to that campus before you make a decision, check it out and see is that campus for you? You know, because you have those specific needs, go and check you it ha- out. You have to think about things much think more. Ahe- yeah, you have yeah. to think always. ahead. You're yeah. always thinking ahead. My, uh, my experience of people with disabilities, truthfully, was before I lost my sight, was years and years ago, my uncle Joe had multiple sclerosis when at a time nobody knew what multiple sclerosis was. And he he walked, he was a sailor originally and then he was a chef in Vincent's Hospital and he was an amazing, he always had a great, real cheerful, very funny man. But he started to limp and no one knew what it was and then eventually he had to use a wheelchair. And I always remember, like, I got on great with him, but I was only, like, 12 or something. But I always remember that he was really angry <laughs> when we were out because people used wouldn't talk to him. They'd be asking me if I was pushing his wheelchair. Uh, uh, does he want or whatever? You know, all that kind of thing. And Joe would spend his life getting really annoyed. And I used to try and make him laugh by whatever. And I just didn't understand that because I was a, a child. And years later then, when I went blind first, the first thing... That was really weird was because I thought I couldn't believe this. It was like they weren't actually talking to me. They were talking to the person I was with. So I was like, what's that about? So suddenly you become invisible. And I spent a long time like that until I got a guide dog because then people were able to talk to me because my cane was a barrier for my blindness, whatever. And when it, once I got the dog, the, you know, like having a child, everyone wants to talk to you. And I found that very, very strange. And the way humans, I don't know, I I think children are very different. They don't seem to have the hang-ups or difficulties in addressing you directly. But, like, people just couldn't talk to you. Like, they were kind of crossing themselves, jumping out of your way. God bless you. (laughs) Welcome to the world. I know, but it was funny because I joined a samba band years ago. And that was the funniest part because when I was trying to go down this road with a cane, there was one particular lady who people will remember from Dublin a long time ago. She had, she always had a blue dress and big cross and she sang. And she Oh, that's right. I do yeah. remember her. Yeah, well, yeah. She used to chase me down the road daily and I'm not joking oh, no. about, you know, and blessed me and whatever because I was different because I was blind and I was a saint and I am a saint, but. <laughs> oh, I've always been a saint to you. But, uh, you know, like, so all <laughs> yeah, that comes into it. You. It's really strange. Like, and people are still. Like nearly, you know, they're like, did we? Can I ask you what happened? And I think, why do you want to know? Like, but anyway, but I'm, I'm, you know, look, I know that's life, and I, I understand it now only because of my own, like my uncle, and now I get it why he was really angry. But I never could understand it when he was. So there you go. So no, it's because I think it's different if you, if it's different if you are born or you have a disability from a young age. Yeah. If you acquire one as an adult, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, you know, it is a yeah, completely different experience. But you know. uh, have you any uh, anecdotes on that, Orla, or, or experiences of, say, 
in your time teaching students or? I, I don't. I mean, I, I, I agree in that I think children have fewer barriers. So obviously this is something we learn culturally to be hesitant or to not be respectful of difference, you know, or engage, you know, open. Um, you know, have I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's a reflection of the society we live in in some ways in that we we have we you know we try to be more inclusive now but we're we're on a journey and and there's a lot of barriers on it and you know i think it's great that you are you are talking openly about this i suppose and even just having this conversation is making me think and see things differently you know so this hour has made a difference to me and and um that's good you know we just need to be much more open no but even my own child when I knew this would happen because my my uh, niece when she was about three she came into the house one day and she said Lorraine walk like we were at. me and my sister used to always meet my mother's on a certain day of the week and in comes my niece and she walks up and down she goes Lorraine walk like me you know <laughs> so when I had my own child I knew this would happen and one day I came in from work and uh um, she was only small. My child was only small at the time. She was about two, two and a bit. And she said, Mammy, you can't walk like me and Daddy. And I said, Ah, oh, yeah, but that's okay, isn't it? So she looked at me and she went off. And about a week later, she came, <laughs> she came back and she said, Mammy, you can't walk like me and Daddy, but that's okay. <laughs> and that's my own child. Yeah, you know, so, yeah it's amazing. So it's am- yeah. like, so, you know. So when you look at it like that, oh, yeah. you know, it's oh, funny. You get, you get great comments. Like there's a little six-year-old next door to me. The, her granny minds her and she's amazing. Like she's just, within, I'm not messing, within a few weeks in the summer, she was telling me where the step was. Oh, brilliant. Unbelievable. Yeah, but she yeah. also said to me one day, it was classic, you know, she said, she, I said to her, oh, I have to get my big, my guide dog groomed. And she said, well, I suppose, you know, that's because you're blind. You know, you can't wash your own dog, in fairness. Like, <laughs> we wa- we wash our dog, Tina, you know. I mean, that's, you know, that's just life, isn't it? <laughs> and she's six, and I'm looking at her going, wow, I love that. That is brilliant. It's brilliant, you know. Yeah. It's it's honest, and it's it makes sense. It's rational, like, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so since the show is called The Blind Spot, can you both tell us what your blind spots are and we'll start with you Orla okay I've just had a complete blank I, um, god I could have done with her thinking about that <laughs> that's why that's we ask blind spot. Um, do you know what Orla I'll go first because right. I can think yeah, of you go first okay, I'll, I'll go first because okay. mine actually is parallel parking I am rubbish at car- parallel parking I think it's because when I park in the disabled way I just kind of park straight in whereas when I have to parallel park it's like oh gee for you know, particularly if you know you've got a car behind you and one in front, I'm like, oh no. So that's my, my blind spot. Parking. Parallel parking. Parallel parking, yeah. I have thought of one. I am really bad at recognising faces. Really bad. And and people wearing masks has made my life very, very difficult. Um. Uh, yeah, so my blind spot definitely is facial recognition. And I have to meet people a few times before I recognise them. And that's kind of hard to explain to people. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Orla, do you know what? I spend a lot of time, before COVID, I would have spent a lot of time, um, you know, out doing, tra- obviously delivering training. So I would have met hundreds and hundreds of people over the years, right? You're the person at the top of the room. People always remember my face. I'm out somewhere and someone goes, oh, hi, Lorraine. And I'm going, eh, hi. <laughs> you know, so, so I know, so I understand that. Very good. Well, 
It's been a pleasure to talk to you both today and we've learned absolutely loads. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lorraine and Dorla. Thank you so much, Tina. Thank you, Tina. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Blind Spot. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Until next time on The Blind Spot. The Blind Spot podcast was funded under the University for All Faculty Partner Programme and developed with the support of the UCD College of Business and UCD Access and Lifelong Learning.